0: What what's what's going to be, you know, happening? Because it, it seems as if pretty clear that if you want to go anywhere with your community, your um, uh, state, um, you're going to toe the line of of where the money's coming from, and not only just where the money's coming from, but what the money speaks. And if the money speaks diversity, equity, inclusion, then you go where the money tells you to go. If the money is speaking, um, the insurance industry is going to be holding the bonds for your school system. And the school system uh, has to comply with the financial lever of the insurance agencies that are also lock stock and and barrel owned by uh, much of the same peoples then you're going to go where the money is speaking uh from and it just it, it seems so relevant as you said russell that we can't escape this until we make a conscious decision to take a look at this this um uh, uh currency this fiat currency that has been in place over us by um you know Jewish power interest and i was looking at some things on some social media this week and i was a little bit surprised by some of the you know, the, the big guys, if you will. And, um, there seems to be in light of quite a backlash. Actually, Elon Musk has come out and said that he's going to sue the ADL because they're affecting ad revenue and some other things. And then, then you have a whole bunch of other people, um, who are the big guys. And they start rattling about why is there all this hate? Why is there all this talk about these people with such hateful and spiteful, you know, words and so forth? And to me, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, how, do you really honestly have to know how bad somebody is has got you completely um controlled by an insurmountable you know debt burden that you can't even pay that you're just basically logging up the time for when the the takeover and the repossession of everything that God has blessed you as an individual with and your nation with and and bring it to naught um, looking at Hezekiah, in fact, in these chapters of 46, 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah, is the lesson, you know, I, I've said it before, it's, it's as if sometimes the lesson gets missed for the words or for the story. And. I find it no exception with this particular part of Isaiah that we're, we're engaged in here as well. So, uh, I don't know, um, if you had some other thoughts on that, Russell or not, and, uh, you know, feel free. But, uh, beyond that, I guess we can go ahead and, and engage the, uh, the fellowship in the study of isaiah this evening so what's your what's your thoughts you had any on it more let's get started well, yeah okay this would be part 23 in the prophet isaiah the conscience of yahweh uh in my mind i pretty much uh as i began to read ahead in the next few chapters as i do i decided that we should just go ahead and take chapter 36 37 38 and 39 together i don't think it's necessary for a full reading with this fellowship this evening um because that's 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 quite a reading of the four chapters but nevertheless, everybody is encouraged to do so on their own. Most certainly. Second Kings chapters 16 through 20 are also a good recap, as is Second Chronicles chapters 31 and 32. But um, I, I really do believe that taken together, um, these four chapters have more to say to us about our current situation today than we probably have even considered and give it much thought to think about um it all centers around of course hezekiah the king of judah and additionally and probably even more importantly the record here in chapters 36 through 39 of isaiah is one of three records that the God of Jacob Israel has seen fit to provide us regarding Assyria's military um, conquests throughout Israel and Judah, the two divided kingdoms. And the other is, of course, Second Chronicles. So you have Isaiah, you have... Um, uh, kings, second kings and and second chronicles. And the record of divine intervention in behalf of Hezekiah's prayer for the blasphemy against God to be recompensed for can hardly be ignored as one of the miraculous actions and divine interventions of Yahweh within His creation. On par, frankly, With the Exodus. Um, Isaiah had, by prophetic and inspired utterances, assured the kingdom of Jerusalem or the kingdom of Judah and specifically Jerusalem in chapters 10, chapter 17, chapter 29, chapter 30, chapter 31, chapter 33 of her salvation from Assyrian destruction. And now, here we are at chapters 36 and 37, complemented then by 2 Kings 16 to 20 and Second Chronicles 32. Um, these remain as the record of the Assyrian king's exploits against Jacob Israel and the Judah kingdom and, and, and also against Israel, the northern ten-tribe kingdom. But specifically here in Isaiah, we're dealing with Judah and and Judah primarily. But this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, um, he records proclaiming the capture of almost four dozen cities. I believe it was 46 cities of Judah. And that he boasted of having shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now, to recognize God standing as a bulwark against Sennacherib and the slaying of 185,000 was just improbable by any stretch of the imagination for that period of time and so forth, by most accounts of the two tribe kingdoms they had really gone so far from him that they just had gotten to the point where he wasn't doing anything for them they were doing it all and they were doing all these machinations and motions um uh, religiosity if you will and you know they thought that because of all those doings that they were just as good as anybody and any people could possibly be and that they were divinely protected regardless of what it was that they did even while they were going through the motions of the religiosity and That account of the uh, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers being slaughtered, it's not been found outside the biblical record. I was doing some more research to see if there was anything new in archaeological finds and so forth, and I, I did not come up with anything. But be that as it may, it's not to be disregarded. Uh, History has always got to be pieced together. And several years ago, as I began in greater earnest to review Isaiah and try to acquire learning from it. These four chapters, as it pertains to the Assyrian Empire, I found some very relevant considerations. And as I was going through them again this past week or so, um, once again. They just started clicking and popping to me as very relevant for today. And since these chapters deal with Assyria and notably the king of Assyria, that being Sennacherib, I wanted to briefly provide some additional historical context from outside the Bible. And those records consist in what is sometimes referred to as the Sennacherib's Annals or the Assyrian annals. And they reflect inscriptions that are found on artifacts. Um, The earliest found was the Taylor Prism. It was found by Robert Taylor in 1830 at Nineveh. And it was purchased from Taylor's widow by the British Museum sometime later. And a nearly universal historical fact seems to occur over and over again empires usually left no record of the military defeats of their empires and the account of second kings chapter 19 verses 35 and 6 which we've read in this series let's just for a quick recap spin back there real quick second kings And we're going to chapter 19. And let's touch with. Uh, the actual account there at chapter 35. It came to pass that night. That the angel of Yahweh went out. And smote in the camp of the Assyrians. A hundred four score and five thousand. One hundred eighty five thousand. And when they arose in the morning. And when. Uh. Excuse me, and when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Um, As I say, I haven't found a uh, secular historical account of the hundred and thirty-five thousand slaughtered. slaughter in other words we haven't found a mass grave um maybe we have and we just don't know about it um because i'll tell you things that were happening in the mid 19th centuries in the middle 1800s uh from late 1700s to the middle to late 1800s almost the archaeological findings uh that were being unearthed seemed to bear much fruit Um, but i'll tell you as far as uh, a world empire being the united states of america and britain once these two empires were conquered by the money system which we started out having a conversation again about in this fellowship I believe that things in the archaeological undertakings uh, began to diminish. Diminish in their significance and importance, uh, or at least in the writings about them. And so it wouldn't surprise me a bit if, if there's something that has transpired or uh, that we just don't know about. Um, or that the archaeological sites are being directed in such a way by now as to keep uh, some of this information from being found if you will but as i say there are uh, records outside the bible and the first one as i say was the taylor prism and um empires in that era would make these inscriptions upon um, columns, spherical or triangular prisms and so forth. And so they've been found and they've been deciphered. Um, in In the cases where little other physical or visible records exist, it would seem that the, you know, the skeptics and the critics go wild in their speculation that this is a myth or that is a myth or this is a fantasy or even you know claims of outright fabrication um even considering that that those uh, professing these things are are religious zealots and and they really you know don't have a um an understanding that that what is myth and and what is outright fabrications and so that's you know, that's where we have to continue to make our deciphering as we also uh, not questioning the scriptures, but as we seek to understand them and, and look for the things which have supported our understandings that we've found, whether it's a Haley's uh, Bible handbook, or as brother James indicated a couple of weeks ago to me, he's picked up a, an archaeological uh, Bible, I believe, is what he said, and um, those things are really, really, very important and help you to, you know, see the historical context of many of these things, and so forth. So, I, I, um, um, I have just different sources that I have at my disposal. I. I've got a complete ex, um, uh, expository uh, work of Vine. And I've got um, some Greek and uh, English New Testament interlinears. I've got, um, of course, my Holman's Bible Dictionary. And that, that little book has, has been fairly good for me over the years with some information on it um as well and i have a couple of other resources too that um you know that i like to to go to i mentioned the chain reference bible the bible it helps me to kind of connect topics together or connect subjects together um because that's what the chain reference bibles do but When you go into the first and second century um, uh, annals and so forth, I found a Greek writer by the name of Lucian Samosata, and he was recorded as having proclaimed, quote, Nineveh has perished. No trace of it remains. No one can say where once it existed, end quote. So there again is one of those writings that tells you something and proclaims that Nineveh is perished, but then at the end kind of puts that that cast of that doubt. No one can say where once it existed. And that's what I mean about some of the critics and so forth that, um, you know, that I find even in, you know, current Bible commentaries and so forth. But time and time again, this God of Jacob Israel has set in motion the chain of events which revealed to men the veracity of his biblical record. This son of God and redeemer of Jacob Israel unequivocally declared to certain of the scribes and Pharisees when they asked of him a sign. So let's turn to that chapter right there of Matthew chapter 12 and let's go from 38 to probably about 41 or 42 I'll see then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying master we would see a sign from thee But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah's. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, A greater than Jonah is here so this is what I mean as we think about the critics and we go back and just think about the words of Christ there as there were certain of the scribes and Pharisees that had come to him seeking the signs and that actual specific reference to Nineveh—that's a proclamation of Nineveh as a historical fact. And this being insufficient, I guess it wasn't until the discovery of Nineveh by Laird and Botta in the mid 1800s—I think it was around 1859 to 66—but certainly. That had to be ha, have somewhat of the essence to silence the critics, but nonetheless, you see, the 185,000 is still something that we want to be critical of because it hasn't been determined by the secular historians, um, but. <laughs> In fact, I found this in the 1962 edition of the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Accurately conveyed the the tens of thousands of tablets containing, quote, an immense amount of data. And of course, the Bible dictionary was referring to that which was found in the digs of Layard and Bata in Nineveh. And around Nineveh. And so the fact that the data relevant to Yahweh's divine intervention and destruction of the 185,000 uh, Syrian soldiers is not contained in Shenacherib's annals can't and doesn't even put the account in the category of fiction or mythology just because it hasn't been found. Certainly, other pieces of evidence. Are sufficient for reasonable conclusions. And additionally, and usually, much of the debates and the criticisms, whether it be of Isaiah's uh, work here, or his um, prophecies, or the Bible in general, they always seem to inev- inevitably detract from the weightier matter of the record and that which it preserves. For example, It is actually understood that Sennacherib lived apparently after this period of time here where he taunted Hezekiah. The record seems to indicate that he was alive 20 years yet after that, after Yahweh had had his hand upon his army. So to me, I look at that and say, okay, well, wait a minute, why don't you account for the 20 years? And why there is no record of any exploits in the Assyrian records beyond these records that he had where he had taken the 46 um, walled and fortified villages of the kingdom of Judah. Because that to me goes hand in hand, you know, but it's it's always just kind of disregarded and set aside. And there just simply is not any record in any of these of any additional exploits that he had. So you have to ask yourself, well, gee, here he is, the most mighty Assyrian king doing all this carnage and rampage across the globe And yet, suddenly, at a period of time in history, the last thing that he records in his annals is the 46 walled villages, and that he had shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. And that's the end of it. And Why would this king of Assyria not have relentlessly pursued his design? His design was to conquer all of Judah. His design was the prize the city of Jerusalem. And the answer to that is divine intervention and a hundred and eighty-five thousand head soldiers. That to me is what answers. Why there's nothing after that to just say that he shut him up like a bird in a cage. Why wouldn't you go after him? And since the biblical record has this account indicating what transpired in the biblical record, it seems highly plausible. Notwithstanding the critics. So. Criticize all you want. But it's still more plausible and highly plausible that something of a divine and miraculous nature sent the Assyrian king back to Nineveh. In fact, the annals of these uh, uh, the Assyrian king indicate that he did in fact die by the sword in jerusalem or excuse me in um nineveh the capital city of assyria and it was Sennacherib who made nineveh the capital city so i liken it to be similar to pharaoh's egyptian army being closed in upon the waters Um, These types of heavenly interventions, they're they're the ultimate in psychological warfare. And this period here recorded in uh, this historical aspect of Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 ought to inspire us to return to chapter 1 and the subsequent chapters that we've studied. Specifically, Judah's abhorrence and wickedness in the sight of God and the indictment against them. You know, we look at our country today, uh, there's an abhorrence and a wickedness in the sight of God. If we believe this God still exists and still reigns, and if we believe in the words that are so often said, as I just said a little while ago, God's in charge. So if we do, in fact, believe that, we must be able to believe. That he's looking at us, America, the Western nations, and what has happened to us as being abhorrent and complete and utter wickedness in his sight. And the indictment against Judah and Israel in the biblical days is the same indictment that would be upon us today. And what's remarkable as I was going through these, especially today with the talk about psychological warfare, and and it occurred to me, Yahweh engaged in psychological warfare tactics amongst Judah, while Shennacherib was waging his own. Shennacherib, for example, says, I'm fierce. I'm invincible. Submit. And Rabsheka was Sennacherib's disinformation czar, whose purpose and intention was to go ahead of Sennacherib to Jerusalem with the message that we've read in this fellowship and to cause division and dissension amongst the Judahites in Jerusalem, including against their leader Hezekiah, just as chapter 36 conveys. As I say, I'm not going to probably engage much of the reading of 36, 7, 8, and 9, because we've covered a lot of this in the previous chapters or the previous fellowships of Isaiah. But there's some key areas that I intend to point out here during the fellowship. And, you know, um, thought we could spend some more time with those thoughts um, since we've, you know, we've pretty well con- delved into uh, 2 Kings uh, 19 and 20. Anyhow, um, the the Western peoples today, If we're not willing to recognize the comparative examples of Reb misinformation campaign in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 36, where he challenges Judah's foundational and core confidence in Yahweh their God, by literally inserting himself as doing the work of God. And I just thought that that was just really insightful. Uh, Turn with me to 36 of Isaiah real quick. It's probably worth at least expounding the scripture out of that. Um, uh, Let's start at four. And Reb said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein you trust? I say." Sayest thou, but they're vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now, on whom does thou trust that thou rebels against me? You know, it's interesting. Who are you that rebels against me? I'm a king going across God's kingdom. His creation. And I'm doing whatever it is that I want to do. And I'm asking, why are you rebelling against me? And I find that so much like we are today. We're just sitting here as a people trying to mind our own business, live life raise a family, teach them to be able to live life, to live it with productivity and in a godly manner. And along comes these entities saying, you know, why why are you doing these things that you're doing? And why would you rebel against me? Just submit, just submit to me. Eight. Or six, excuse me. Lo, thou trust in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, broken, broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man leans, it will go up into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all that trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars that Hezekiah had taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now, therefore, give pledges, I pray thee, to my master and the king of Assyria. And I will give thee 2,000 horses, if thou be able to put riders on them. I'll stop there. Well, I should probably do 10, I guess. Um, 9 and 10. How then wilt thou turn away the face of the one of the captain, of the least of my master servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for the chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. I needed to read that because that was the whole point of going there. Verse 10, go up again. in fact, he's saying, The Lord said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. And the interesting thing, you know, is that Hezekiah recognized that as being blasphemous. And we're kind of that way with some misinformation generals and so forth saying we should go up to Ukraine. We should go up to Germany. We should go up to, you know, Vietnam. We should go up to uh, Pakistan. We should go up to Afghanistan. We should go up to Iraq. And they encourage us to go up to those lands as if we're doing God's work. And the thing that ought to be occurring to us is that we're supposed to just be about his business, his will, abiding in his laws, statutes, and judgments, and the rest of it is just going to happen because the rest of the nations will see all that great righteousness and while we were a nation that were pursuing after that, we received abundant favor. And these chants and the taunts, these chants and taunts that uh, that we see here um, out of Ribshecha, they're not at all unlike. Those calling themselves God's chosen today, demanding and insisting that they follow the will of Yahweh, the God of Jacob Israel, and that they are indeed his chosen, while simultaneously rejecting the son to whom all power and authority was given. And then additionally, doing all manner of ungodly and unrighteous oppressive actions in the world and should they not be called out by it and as i say you look around the social media you have this one giant of social media who happens to be the billionaire elon musk now saying that you know this adl is is really getting to be a problem Meanwhile, everybody else in the social media that's the small guys that have been saying what a problem this ADL is, including our very own Pastor Peters, who was tarred and feathered by the ADL. And so here we sit with a Reb Shekha within this group of people claiming to be the chosen people of God, while rejecting everything that we've been given in the scriptural record of the new covenant, as well as the old covenant, to suggest, if nothing else, that not only are they not the people of God, they certainly are not following his laws, statutes, commands, and judgments because they are the progenitors of the oppression in the land. Shebna, Hilkiah, and Joab, they tried to shield the ears of those that were sitting on the wall, that is the rank and file, so to speak, from the words of Reb Shekha by asking him to use the Aramaic language. You see, the Aramaic language would have been more familiar to the educated And the regular Hebrew language, the language of the Judahites on the wall, may be a little less known to them or familiar. So he doesn't want those on the wall to hear what the propagandist Reb Shekha is saying. And so it's just like us today. We have those Reb Shekhas Who are using propaganda warfare against us. And they want to use their own language. And as I say. What. Shebna and Hilkiah and Joab wanted. Was just. To shield their ears. So that they might not defect. And Reb answer was, did my master send me with this taunt for your master and for you and not for the men sitting on the wall? Doomed along with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And then he continued to speak in Hebrew loudly so as to be heard intending to sow the seeds of discord discord in their faith discord in their faith in their leader hezekiah as well hezekiah presents his people and us today a lesson a lesson in courage, a lesson in a resolve of faith, a lesson in a prayerful reliance in the face of intimidation and propaganda. Although Yahweh did indeed employ Assyria for his purposes in punishing Israel and additionally allowed it through Judah One thing he did not do, he did not and had not yet given Jerusalem to Sennacherib. And thus the blasphemy of Rabshakeh in proclaiming that it was authorized by the very God of creation. And I think it's slowly occurring to many professing Christians that those calling themselves Jews today as being God's chosen people and thus following and doing as they say is harmful to them. And indeed, contrary to Yahweh's will. And after Hezekiah's earnest prayer and plea for deliverance comes the assurance in chapter 37 of Isaiah, verses 5 to 8. As I say, you can read these four chapters on your own, because I'm not going to go into an extensive reading of them. So the servants of King Hezekiah at 37 5 came to Isaiah. Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say unto your master, thus says Yahweh, be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Rabsheka returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. I think the interesting aspect of this prophecy to me is. Remember from 362, the Assyrian king sent Rabshakeh from Lachish. So what we might be thinking. Well, it appears that many believe that the scripture actually is conveying that the king of Assyria is actually at Jerusalem. When the 185,000 are killed. However, 37 verse 8 makes it clear that Sennacherib had departed Lachish. That is actually where the order was given to Rebsheka for he and the army to deliver. So, in other words, what you have is Rebsheka getting an order from Sennacherib to take 185,000 soldiers and head to Jerusalem with this order. Meanwhile, Sennacherib is closing up in Lachish. And according to the scripture, uh, uh, Sennacherib Reb has heard that he's now left Lachish and is heading for Libna. Now, Lachish is slightly southwest of Jerusalem. Libna is to the north. Well, actually, it's probably almost due west and maybe a slight bit uh, north, but very, very much almost due west. And so you can kind of get the geography there then of where this is occurring and what's happening. As I say, now, uh, Rebsheka has taken off from Lachish and has headed to Jerusalem and has given Hezekiah this propaganda um, and this intention to sow the seeds of discord and, and shake things up a bit. Now, it may be speculation on my part, but I believe that the hearsay or the rumor as the scripture could be the word could be uh, translated either way the hearsay or the rumor was that the king of the Assyria of Assyria was moving in battle from Lachish to Libna and so rather than coming to Jerusalem which might have been the expected next move rather he had shifted to Libna. This may have prompted prompted Reb Sheka to delay and advance on Jerusalem, and the reason for the the overnight stay. Um, and perhaps the rumor or the word that he had heard meant that. He was going to take an early morning departure and head for Libna. So there's not anything real definitive in that. And you may not think it's a big deal, but, you know, I get caught up on little things like this and I try to study them out and try to figure out what might have been going on. And so, as I say, speculation on my part is this, and that is what maybe prompted Rev to delay. And the delay is what resulted in 185,000 dying in the night. And therefore, Rebsheka having no men resulted in Sennacherib realizing he's he's lost those men there. I think he must have left Libna as well. And it resulted in him just Sennacherib returning to Nineveh to ponder these profound events that had occurred outside of Jerusalem. End of speculation. Here's something that is not speculation, it, appear, it would appear, and that's from Josephus. Josephus provides this account at book 10, chapter one, verses four and five in Antiquities of the Jews, and I quote, now, when Sennacherib was returning from his Egyptian war to Jerusalem, he found his army under Rebsheka, his general, in danger. God had sent a pestilential distemper among his army, and on the very first night of the siege, a hundred, fourscore, five thousand with their captains and generals were destroyed. So the king was in a great dread and in a terrible agony at this calamity and being in great fear for his whole army, he fled with the rest of his forces to his own kingdom and city Nineveh. He abode there a while and was treacherously assaulted and died by the hand of his elder sons. Continuing, this proved to be the conclusion of this Assyrian expedition against the people of Jerusalem, end quote. So, there is Josephus' account. I don't think he answers the question regarding Libna and Lachish and the departure from Lachish to Libna. And so, mine speculation is, as I say, speculation. At least I have the courage to tell you what my speculation is. Now, a final thought probably on chapter 37. I wanted to read you chapter 37 from Smith and Goodspeed Um, in verses 8 and 9. The staff commander, hearing that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, went to find him besieging Libna. But as news came that Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, had suddenly marched to attack him, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went away back to Nineveh where he lived. So that gave me a little bit of an insight there because he mentions Tur. I don't know if I if that's Terhaka or Terbaka, uh, the king of Ethiopia. So apparently the king of Ethiopia had had made some kind of a, a move as well. And maybe that was the rumor that he heard. And hearing that uh, this king of Ethiopia had uh, begun its march. With the loss of the 185,000, it may have been that the king of S- Sennacherib ha- had a con- conclusion or a belief that he was not going to be successful in a campaign um, against the king of Ethiopia at that time, Tirhaka or Tabaka. So there's two additional pieces of insight on that there. Um, uh, One of the most, I think, significant takeaways of the record in 2 Kings, and this one here in chapter 37, is that one really never knows when God may be willing to pardon the sins of a people or a nation because of the prayer of one righteous and faithful person. And so we pray because Lord knows we're not all as faithful as we'd like to believe that we are. And we're not all righteous. In fact, I found myself this week recognizing I'd done a very dumb thing and all I could do was call upon Yahweh to forgive me for the stupidity that I exhibited in the face of the circumstances of Babylon and that he'd hold it not against me and that it wouldn't also the stupidity work against those that are coming after and the descendants anyhow from chapter 37 let's read chapter 21 to 29 isaiah the son of amos set hezekiah saying sent unto hezekiah saying thus says yahweh god of israel whereas thou hast prayed to me against chenakherib King of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion has despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. That's all in reference to this daughter and virgin of Judah, whom thou hast reproached in blasphemy. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? and against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes in high, even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants hast thou reproached Yahweh and has said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon. And I will cut down the tall cedars thereof and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border in the forest of his Carmel." I have digged and drunk water with the sole of my feet. Have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places? Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou should be laid waste that now, hold on, let me say that again. Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste defense cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their habitations were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb is the grass of the housetops and the corn blasted before it be grown. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy raging against me. Because thy rage against me, And thy tumult is come up to my ears. Therefore, will I put a hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou came. There's his answer. Yahweh rhetorically asks, what he affirms himself concerning Assyria is a, a reproach and blasphemy being against him. This account actually conveys just a little bit more than the account in Second Kings chapter 19, but in the end, Yahweh makes it clear. It is he who had put in motion Assyria and to take those defense cities. And now he's making it abundantly clear. It is he who's going to put a hook in Assyria's nose and turn her back. So Yahweh records why Sennacherib returned to Nineveh because Yahweh put a hook in his nose. Oh, I know. It's not a literal hook. But imagine that. The same way they put a ring in the nose of a bowl. And then they grab that ring with that hook and they can lead that bowl wherever they want him to go. That's the metaphor, the analogy, if you will, of what Yahweh intended to do in taking Sennacherib back to Nineveh. In that same chapter, then, verse 30 and 32, uh, This is pretty important. I spent a little time on this too, because, you know, I wanted to understand what exactly was going on here. And and, and I think I've got a fairly good understanding of why 30 in the King James, this shall be a sign of the, in fact, um, I meant to look that up in good- Smith and Goodspeed to see. Uh, maybe I'll read it out of Smith and Goodseed just as I know what the King James says. I'll read it. Uh, verse 30 of chapter 37, Isaiah, you shall have proof of this for while you feed this year on casual grains and next year on what springs from casual grains in the third year, you can sow and reap a crop. You can plant vineyards and enjoy their fruit and what survives of the house of Judah, the remnant, shall once more strike down its roots and then rise to be fruitful for a remnant of survivors shall spread out from Jerusalem and from Mount Zion, thanks to the jealous care of Yahweh, end quote. Isn't that just, I sometimes just am so marveled by Smith and Goodspeed's translation. It's just so remarkable. Here's King James, and this shall be a sign unto thee. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year that which springs of the same. And in the third year, sow ye and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. The remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall take again root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall do this. All right, so this presents, I think, the significance of a remnant, number one. And yes, you might be thinking, well, of course, because in uh, Nehemiah and and, um, Ezra, they did return. And so, of course, there was a remnant, but it conveys the message to Hezekiah that these passages are actually conveying to the reader, if you will, of the foreknowledge of Yahweh concerning the Assyrian arrival at Jerusalem. And the ability of the remnant to once again harvest. So he was telling Hezekiah his men would be unable to plow the field in that year of the Assyrian presence. And they would be eating of that which grew. The next year they would eat of that which grew out of that original harvest that went to seed, I think is what it's saying. But after they had left, they would have the tilling of the spring and the tilling of the previous fall. And therefore, they would have the sufficiency then for the promise of the the balance of the bounty that was going to be available to them in that year and the balance of chapter 37 relates to the smitten army of the 185,000 um and Sennacherib's death by sword as prophesied so there is the whole of basically 36 and 37 um chapter 38 um is the account of Hezekiah's extension of life and the sign that God gave in turning the shadow uh back 10 degrees um i think what differs here in isaiah's account from second kings uh chapter 20 is that there's a bit more detail concerning hezekiah's illness and his thoughts essentially about death um you know concerning both the illness and death in 38 9 to 14 i'm not going to spend a lot of time on that but after which of of 9 to 14 you have um him extolling the virtues um of this extension of life and read that in the context of some of the things that i'm going to share with you um about chapter 39 because i think that you'll see what i'm saying as you reflect back and as i mentioned about my own self you know doing a stupid thing and realizing that it could have profound effect on on progeny or you know prof- profound effect on that which the lord gives and uh, i want to encourage everybody to be thankful for the things that you have from him and recognize the bounty of them in you know more fervent and earnest ways than 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 perhaps you do um, without considering it, and uh, you know because it 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 really is uh, something that I think we learn from Hezekiah's foolishness in chapter thirty nine, but in chapter thirty nine. Over and over, I should say, first in scripture, you know, we find Yahweh providing miraculous deliverance, miraculous protection, divine intervention in behalf of his people over and over and over in the moments of opportunity. When we have the opportunity to show how blessed we are. We have a propensity to show overzealously how wonderful we are. And I think that's the great takeaway that I got as I read Ezekiel 30 or Isaiah 39 regarding Hezekiah. Let's just quickly read it. I think I can wrap things up as I give you the sense of what our lessons are. 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all of his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And friends, whence came they? Hezekiah said, they're from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, well, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all that is in mine house. Have they seen? There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, God is, excuse me, good is the word of Yahweh, which thou hast spoken. He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. In the moment of opportunity. When Hezekiah had it within his power. Maybe before I even say that, I should back up and put our minds on this thought. Hezekiah is ill. In the sequence of events, Isaiah 36 to 39. We have these events occurring before this period of time in which these visitors from Babylon come. And put that in that context in your mind. And now they come, and the very time of opportunity. To be able to say, first of all, let me ask this. Why do you suppose these people came? Is it, is it merely because the king of Babylon wanted to wish Hezekiah well? I don't really think so. Remember that the king of Babylon at this time has already been in rebellion against Sennacherib king of Assyria and has been embattled himself. I think it's completely probable. Maybe it's speculation. I really don't think it is, but I'll go ahead and give you the speculation alert. I think it's highly probable that he went there to find out what it was and how it was that Hezekiah was able, was able to turn Sennacherib back. I'm not sure that he had any knowledge of the 185,000. Perhaps he did. But certainly the record here reflects that he didn't convey that at all to these ambassadors from Babylon. You know, it would have been simple enough just to have said thanks for the gifts and turned these ambassadors back and said, thus says uh, Yahweh, God of Israel, he'll fight our battles for us. I believe that Baladan was looking for a league with Hezekiah because he'd been embattled, and 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 was probably likely to expect that he was going to do it again. Uh, Shnacrab to the king of Babylon, and um, you know, go where the guy that's got the might is, and send him presents and. You know, if you have the opportunity to say it's because you knew that he wasn't feeling well, um, you know, so much the better. So the very moment of opportunity to show how much God had done for him, he showed him how wonderful he was, how much great wealth he'd acquired. And I feel that we're that way, same way. How much great wealth we acquire. What great ambassadors to his kingdom that we claim we are. Hezekiah descended from a wicked king, King Ahaz. And here he was recorded as the greatest king. None like before him and none like after him. Yahweh promised Hezekiah Sennacherib would not set foot in Jerusalem. Yahweh gave him the requested sign of turning the shadow back 10 degrees while he watched it. Promised him 15 more years of life. In fact, I want to do that. Second Chronicles 32. Quick flip over there. Second Chronicles chapter 32, and listen to this in 7. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed, for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is Yahweh our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. After this, did Sennacherib king of Assyria, send his servants to Jerusalem. But he himself laid siege against Lachish and all his power with him unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, and unto all Judah that were at Jerusalem, saying. And then it goes into the Sennacherib's propaganda. But what you see there in Second Chronicle 32 7 to 9 was Hezekiah telling them exactly what they needed to hear in order to be faithful. And that chapter also records that he had exceeding riches. He had honor. He had treasuries of silver, treasuries of gold, treasuries of precious stones, storehouses for the increase, stalls for all manner of beasts. And in the end, Hezekiah, in spite of all those things, in the moment necessary to give honor and glory to Yahweh for his righteousness, And for his everlasting goodness. And instead. He showed them in. Pride, haughtiness. His sin was ingratitude. Oh, I know we have scriptures that said Hezekiah saying songs. Learning of these 15 years. It wouldn't seem as if he was ingratious. He was very gracious in song. Very gracious in words. But the words that were rolling off his tongue were not the words that were necessary from the heart in the moment. The scripture says he rendered not according to the benefit given. That one kind of stood me up a little bit this week. You render not again. According to the benefit given. I wonder if America and her Christian Western nation, sisters and brothers in Christ are even possibly at the point of being humble enough to render to Yahweh according to the benefit that they would ask of him. He was delivered from the most powerful assailant that was walking the face of the earth at the time. You know, I I read things like this and I think, how could you be so obtuse? But I realize that I can't. Because if I point the one finger at Hezekiah, I've got to recognize I've got three pointing back at me. Ingratitude was a sin which Uzziah and Rehoboam. Exhibited. Prideful. His heart was so lifted up. That he showed all his treasures. As if they were his. In fact, the scripture said that when he was given those 15 years, he was going to go softly all his years because of how bitter his soul was regarding the prospect of death. He was no more given the desire of his prayerful heart Then his heart was lifted up. As if he had done it on his own. And I look at us here today and. The MAGA movement. And pride may come indeed before the fall. Should things go the way the MAGA movement wants it to go next year? And four years more life is granted them. Will they be humble enough? Not humble now. I can't even imagine a Donald J. Trump yet at this time. And I don't speak it to cast dispersions. But I just don't see him humbling himself either. To be thankful and grateful for all that God would do. And so this is the lesson and the quandary that I think we find ourselves in. If we really believe in Yahweh, the God of Jacob, Israel. Then we have to start acknowledging that the blessings come from him. And accepting the curses. That we have brought upon. Ourselves. And that he ensures that he executes righteous judgment through them. The lessons to me just keep jumping out at me. And I'm so grateful for them. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity and this fellowship time. Share the moving of spirit through these books of the prophet isaiah and i pray father that it's a blessing to those that hear it be edifying for them in spirit and that they might understand them in an application to today And that we have a whole lot more work to do regarding our house, our spiritual house, than we might have even believed that we did. And so, Father, I pray to that end. Father, help us, guide us, direct us, and strengthen us in a resolve to strengthen and to correct our spiritual house, that we might be of some worldly good to you for your kingdom. And that your will does indeed be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, continue to pray for those in need of prayer and sickness father we know you know their needs we ask for you to continue to keep them in your care those that are caring for them we thank you for the hands of patience and the hands of assurance in this hour of difficulty and trouble we ask for your divine intervention and healing hands upon those that are still suffering We ask for it, we trust in it, we count on it, we seek it. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. 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 Well, good night, everybody. All right, good night, all. Good night. Thanks for joining. We'll see.